Good morning, Cross Point. Hope you guys are doing well. Am I good? Yeah. Excellent. So kids, I see you making your way out. You can be released for our children's program. And so glad that you are here this morning and worshiping with us. We are continuing through a series that we started last week that's, that's called A Fight for Joy. Um, what it looks like to overcome uh, and walk in victory over the patterns of sin in our life. And, and we took the time to talk about, like, what is joy? Joy is more than just happiness in our circumstances, something, something that is temporary. But joy is this deep, foundational peace in our soul as we abide in God's nature and character. This is what we long for. This is what we desire, the, the the satisfaction and joy of our hopes that can only be found in God. This is what we want to move towards through this summer and to understand in our own heart, in in the garden of our hearts, like where is our heart seeking satisfaction in God? Or where is our heart seeking satisfaction in other things? Like this was the, the definition of sin from last week. Sin is forsaking God to pursue alternative sources of satisfaction. Anything that we look to, even good things that we look to to replace God, to find our joy and satisfaction in them can become sin when they seek to displace God. This was the heart of the passage we looked at last week in Jeremiah 2.13 where, where God said to the nation of Israel, my people, they've committed two evils against me. It said one is they've forsaken me that the fountain of living waters, that, that this series, it's an invitation to encourage our hearts to rest, to abide in Christ, to, to stay, to remain in what is declared to be true as believers of who we are in Christ, to rest there, to stay there, to abide there. But this was what God was saying to the nation, that they've forsaken me. They moved away rather than trusting in the fountain of living waters. They've dug for themselves their own cisterns that can hold no water. They're lapping in the dirt because they've forsaken the fountain of living water that can satisfy. And, and so it's an opportunity in our own hearts to see where's that happening? How is that happening? And I use this picture that you'll see up on the screen. This is the garden of our house. That growing some tomatoes, jalapenos, some things. And you'll see off to the left there, there's a faucet with an irrigation hose that's set up to a timer. And, and the faucet where the living water comes from for the garden. But what happened was when our lawn service came, they actually cut the hose and everything started dying. And I didn't realize why. And so the question was, like in our own life, have we forsaken God? Are we disconnected from the faucet of living water, if you will? And, and, and next to our garden, for whatever reason, I didn't put it there and I haven't moved it either, is this empty bucket. If I took the end of the hose and I put it in that empty bucket and I was like, hey, that's going to take care of it. I don't need to reconnect it to the faucet. I'm just going to put it in the empty bucket and everything's going to be fine. This is what so often we do in our own hearts when we look to anything other than God for our joy and satisfaction. And so I want you to imagine in your mind's eye, like there's seven different kinds of buckets outside the garden of your heart. 
seven different ways that, in which tempt us to say, oh, maybe I'm going to trust this. Oh, maybe I'm going to trust that. I want to trust anything other than God. Throughout history, these have been known as the seven deadly sins. There's part of me that likes this phrase, and there's part of me that doesn't. Okay, so I just want to preface, because in these coming seven weeks, we're going to be looking at these individual sins as empty buckets that we seek our joy and satisfaction in. I like it because in the, the mid-fourth century, Eva Garris of Pontus was a, a monk for 17 years in this monastic community where he was a pastor, he was a teacher, he was they're pastoring these young men. And he began to see that there was this consistency of thought, kinds of thoughts that were constantly needing to be overcome within the people. And he listed out eight kinds that were known as, as vices or eight thoughts of categories. If you think of a category or a kind as if I say dog being one, but that can mean Doberman Pinscher, that can mean a, a Husky, that can mean a Chihuahua or a Great Dane. There's all different ways that that's expressed, but there's a kind. Pride, anger, lust, sloth. There's different ways that, that our heart seeks satisfaction in something other than God. In the 5th century, this then came to Western Christianity. It was built upon in Marshall Siegel in his book, Killjoys, that's published by Desiring God Ministries, says this, these categories served as a rubric for self-examination, as an aid for confession. Earnest Christians could trace the, the species, the, the kind, if you will, of sin to their source and excise them through repentance and application of the gospel. Way of understanding our hearts so that we could walk in repentance and, and trust and rest in, in applying the gospel to our life. That's why I like these categories. What I don't like about them is then later in, in the um, 13th century, nearly a thousand years after they were first thought through, the Catholic Church did begin to qualify them by adding the adjective deadly of now what we know as the seven deadly sins, and they kind of put them on a spectrum, some being worse than others. And it brought about a misunderstanding of even what sin is, its nature of sin that separates us from God. And it started to go in an unhelpful direction until the 16th century and the Protestant Reformation began to correct some of that. So there's some there that if you have a history with, I do want to just give a caution in our hearts of how we understand it. But looking today of beginning with pride, that all sins, all ways that our hearts seek satisfaction apart from God himself is sin. And pride can be one of those ways. In many ways, pride is the essence of all sin. Because all sin separates us from God, but while other sins may put a distance between us and God, pride in itself seeks to place ourselves above God. Think of the echo of the lie from the Garden of Eden. You will be like God. Pride wants to elevate ourselves above God. Determine for ourselves what's right and wrong. Pride seeks to place ourselves at the center. 
And in many ways, pride isn't just this external bucket. It's as if you take that hose from the garden that was cut and you just bury it in the dirt. And you say, the garden is now self-sufficient. It will water itself. It will be its own source of life. It will be its own source of satisfaction. It will be its own source of living water. It will now be fully contained in itself. But that would be ridiculous, right? Like we would look at that and be like, you just buried the hose in the dirt. Nothing's going to come of that. But this is what pride does in our heart. It says, I'm self-sufficient. I got this. I can do this on my own. And the scripture calls us, and it says that God hates pride. Proverbs 8, 13, I hate pride and arrogance and corruption and perverse speech. Isaiah 13, I will crush the arrogance of the proud and humble the pride of the mighty. This is how God feels about pride. But I, what I want us to see this morning is what is pride and how do we untangle it from our hearts so that we can walk in humility as we abide in Christ. This is my hope and prayer for us this morning. So if you will, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 9. We'll be looking at two verses there in verses 23 and 24. And so as you turn there to Jeremiah chapter 9, I want to open us in prayer. Lord, I thank you for this time this morning. Lord, to, to open your word, that, that I pray that you would examine our hearts, the hidden ways in which pride can linger in our hearts and tempt us to say that, that, that we have to take care of ourselves because nobody else will. All the lies that seek to, to build up and tear down, Lord, I pray that you would raise them to the surface and lead our hearts to speak your truth of who you are that we would find our hope and rest and joy and satisfaction in you this morning. And in Jesus' name, amen. So Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Like, look at that first part. Let not the wise man essentially boast in himself, in his wealth, in his might, in his um, understanding. Let not us boast in ourself. C.S. Lewis says that pride leads every other vice. It leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Jonathan Edwards said that pride is the most hidden, secret, and deceitful of all sins. It can be hidden in our hearts, so it's not just enough to talk about it and to think that we understand it or we can see it in other people, but it can be hidden in our own motives. Help us to, to identify where pride may be lingering in our heart and where this then becomes an invitation to abide in Christ and in who He is. In many ways, I want us to see, if you will, pride as a coin. There's 
two sides of it, one way that is more visible, and then a shadow side that can be more hidden. Side, there's different facets of even how we understand it, some that lead to like, okay, that's clear, I know what pride is. There's some forms of pride I think we can easily point out, we can easily understand in ourselves, and there's others that are more secret, they're more underlying, they're an undercurrent within our heart. See, on one side of pride, the one that's more visible is when we puff ourselves up, right? We build ourselves up. Sometimes it's, it, it's in our own mind of how we think about ourselves. It's the self-exaltation. This is what comes to mind of like, I deserve this. Muhammad Ali, who said, I am the greatest. I said that even before I knew I was the greatest. I am the greatest. It is the thought that wants to elevate ourselves above everyone else. I did it. I'm do it. I've succeeded. I have accomplished. Look at me. It, it, it is the focus on oneself. We exalt it on one hand, don't we, with athletes? When, when, when they step on the court and they know, like, I am the best. But then we put it down of other celebrities who are like, don't you know who I am? And there's part of it that we celebrate, and there's part of it that we get ignore, uh, annoyed by. But within ourselves, there's this aspect of how we think of ourselves. Aren't I do this? Look at what I've accomplished. Look at me. Why don't other people see this? And this is where the self-exaltation leads to self-promotion. See, it's not just enough for me to think I'm great. I want you to think I'm great. And so now it's in how we talk about ourselves. It's what we say, what we want others to see and to say about us, what we want them to acknowledge. And we find creative ways to do this. We promote it. In 2014, Forbes had an article entitled 10 Stealthy Techniques for Self-Promotion. Like now you can promote yourself and get away with it. They won't even know you're doing it. So you won't be accused of being prideful, but they're still going to think you're great in the end. Self-help books titled How to Promote Yourself with Ease and Confidence, The Key to Successful Self-Promotion, The Art of Shameless Self-Promotion. And this isn't just out there. This is in me. Like as a pastor, I've been encouraged, build your own platform because you have something worthy to, to share. And so if you make a name for yourself, that'll actually give you a platform to share more. But it's really just a way of wanting to be a superstar pastor. But here, here's the way it actually works. I have to be careful when, when I'm, I can't tell you how many times, like when, when you have to preach on this, <laughs> you become like so intimately aware of all the ways you struggle with it. So here's what happens during the week. I'm studying, I'm, I'm writing the sermon, and there's little bits of when I give an illustration or a story that I want to add and it's a, it's a detail. It's, a, it's something because I want to shape how you think of me. It doesn't help explain anything. It's not for the benefit of the illustration. So I have to ask myself, am I saying this because it actually brings about understanding to the point that is being made? Or am I saying this because I want you to perceive me in a certain way? Do you see where that gets to? Like, this is where it's at for me. As someone who, who stands up and speaks, like, like it's, it's these little bits. Of, I can just add this little detail to the story. I can just slide it in there. 
But really, the motivation has nothing to do for understanding. It has everything to do with, I want to shape how you see me. That's pride. Like, I have to go back in and say, like, why am I saying that? What's the motivation in it? We all have this. In the workplace, in the home, what we say to our kids, what we say to our friends. Are you talking to them for their benefit to help them understand or connect with something? Or are you saying it because you're trying to shape their perception of you? This is the hidden ways that self-promotion leaks in. And then that, that begins to impact how we want to relate to God. This is where we talk about self-justification. Like, now I want to take credit for the morally good things I've done. God, look at what I did for you. Aren't you so happy that I'm on your side? Do without me. We don't say that out loud. Well, sometimes, but... Like, we can feel it. We're like, but look, look at what I've accomplished. Look at what I've done. We want to take credit for it. But here's the thing. This is the obvious side of pride. I think it's more obvious. I think this is the front-facing side of pride that we're more familiar with. But there's also the shadow side of pride, the other side of pride, that it's not necessarily seeking to build ourselves up, but we seek to tear ourselves down. In that there's a prideful tendency. See, instead of self-exaltation, it's self-degradation. It's the other side. I'm such a terrible person, right? I'm horrible. I mess up constantly. Like I'm just, look at how bad I am. The, the, The anthem of our life is that children's song. I don't know how to sing it, but we've sang it before in the car. Like nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. Guess I'll go eat worms. Long ones, thin ones, slimy ones, short ones, fat and juicy ones, itsy bitsy, fuzzy wuzzy worms. Have you ever sang that to yourself? Is it only me? Okay. (laughs) Okay, somebody else has. I'm not the only one. Like there's just times we just want to play the pity party. Right? Like look at how bad I am. And and the reality is this is the shadow side of self-exaltation. It's a focus on self, but rather than saying I'm so great, it's still a focus on self, but it's only going to say, look at how bad I am. Look at everything wrong that I've done. I'm just terrible. But, but there can kind of be this sense of, but I deserve more. I, I deserve something better. But maybe I don't deserve it better because I'm so bad. But all the focus is on ourselves. And this can lead then to self-demotion. Instead of promoting ourselves, put ourselves down. I have it so much worse than other people. They've had it so easy. They've been so blessed. I don't have anything. I just I never seem to catch a break. Right? They have all the luck. I can't believe they've had all the breaks. I mean, look at me. I haven't had any opportunities. It's just, and we just begin to ruminate on the things we don't have. But here's the insidious side of pride, that this self-demotion can actually be kind of this desire. It's a sneaky form of self-promotion. Right? We're actually fishing for 
affirmation, for reassurance. Because we actually believe we deserve more. Right? Like, have you ever, I've done this too. Like, let, let's say it's a, uh, I like photography or drawing and, and you like it, you know it's not like a masterpiece, but you're proud of it. And then you go to someone and you're like, I know this is terrible, but what do you think? Like, I really can't draw. I'm not very good at this, but, but, but what do you think? And they're like, that's amazing. That's great. Really? Like, I don't, I don't know. Does it resonate with anybody where you're, you're humble? It's not really humble. It's fishing, right? You think you're better and you just want to go about it like, tell me how great you think I am. I just want to hear it, right? So let me say it this way so I come across humble, but really this is what I need you to say. Like if they say to you, yeah, you're right, that's just junk you're going to be upset, right? Because that's not what you want them to say because that's not what you believe. So even the self-demotion can be this form of, of pride that's still centered on self. And that leads then to instead of self-justification, just self-condemnation. It's the Eeyore mentality. Everything's horrible. It's terrible. It's bad. It's this constant focus on all the ways we've fallen short. We've broken our own standards. And it's mentally replaying over and over again our failures, our mistakes. To, to relive the, the guilt and shame. Like I wrestle with this one too. Like I can preach the gospel to others, but there's times in what I've excused as humility and repentance, I've simply relived the guilt without ever moving on. True repentance will result in end in a rejoicing in our redemption in Christ. That is where repentance leads and ends. But sometimes when we get into the cycle of a prideful self-condemnation, what happens is we never move beyond the, I'm a sinner, I'm a worm. I've fallen short, I've broken it, and we just stay there. But this is just another lie. It's a form of pride that wants to keep the focus on ourselves rather than moving from repentance to the rejoicing that Christ paid the penalty for that sin. That I am redeemed. That I am a child of God. That I'm made new. That I'm a new creation. That my sin is not condemned because Christ was condemned in my place. This is what's true. This is who I am. This is where repentance leads to. This is what we're called to abide in, but the lie of pride wants to hold us in either assuming we have it all under control or we're just the worst person. And here's what they all have in common. All of these ways, they all begin with self. It's all about us occupation with ourselves, that we're at the center of attention, whether we're building ourselves up or tearing ourselves down, it's all about us. And that is how you identify pride, 
when it begins and ends with us. Tim Keller calls this a form of cosmic plagiarism. I love this phrase. Like, God is the master composer of our life. The creator of everything. It's as if we go to the Grand Canyon and you stand there and you're looking at everything God has made, but rather than standing in awe, you hold up a mirror and gaze at yourself. And then you tell everybody around you, look what I made. Isn't it beautiful? People are going to think you're crazy, right? But how many ways do we do this in every aspect of our life? When God is the author of our story, he is the one at work, and yet we say, look at me, look at what I did. Aren't I amazing? It's like, no, you're not the author of your life. God is. They're lies, it's plagiarism. We're, we're taking for ourselves what ultimately belongs to God. And so I, I want to assume that in some way, we all resonate with pride at work in our heart. Like we can say, yep, seen that, seen that. Take enough time to meditate on it. I, I believe that we would see it. And so the question is, how do we begin to untangle our hearts to see the emptiness of pride and then not in there? Because if we were just say, okay, now I'm going to leave here and just try harder. Don't be prideful. Don't be prideful. It's like you're taking that hose and burying it deeper and deeper in the dirt and saying, I can do this. I got this. What we are called to do to break the cycle of pride is to abide in Christ, to look to Him, a superior satisfaction. This is what breaks the entanglement of pride from our, our hearts. It's not merely to stop thinking about ourselves, but to fix our eyes on what is greater. Jeremiah 9 and in verse 23 says, Don't let the wise boast in their wisdom or, or in his power or in his riches. Don't boast in himself, but it continues in verse 24. But those who wish to boast, boast in God. You, you want to talk about something? You want to fix your eyes on something? Don't fix your eyes on yourself. Fix your eyes on God and who he is. This is what we're called to. And then the question is, what do we see? See, I love this phrase. It, it is God who practices these things. He practices steadfast love. He practices justice, uh, righteousness. It's this sense that in this word, what I love about it, just that God possesses out, like something that is outside of himself. It's not just that he possesses steadfast love and he demonstrates it. This word for practice, it doesn't just mean that, hey, he tries sometimes and he fails sometimes. This is the exact same Greek word that you find in Genesis 1.1 or Genesis 1.7 where it says, in the beginning, God created. It's the same word for create, for he made this is why I say abiding not just in what God does, but it's coming from his very nature of who he is. This is who God is that we're abiding in, that we're resting in. 
joy that, that will ultimately be found as we rest in Christ. I think this is exactly what the Apostle Paul was getting to when in both 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, two letters that he wrote to the church in Corinth. He references this passage in Jeremiah 9. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 and 31, he says, Because of God, you are in Christ Jesus. He became to us wisdom from God. He became to us righteousness. He became to us our sanctification. He became to us our redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You want to fix your eyes on something? Fix your eyes on God because of who He is. Lift your eyes to a superior joy. And then you you think of these descriptions. The steadfast love of God. The the Hebrew word here that some may be familiar with is, is hesed. The love of God, this steadfast, enduring love of God that is His nature, a loyal love. That even when, when you are disloyal, God will remain loyal to you. It is a sacrificial love. It is a love that, that is costly. It's not just a love when it's convenient. It's a love that, laid, that, that led Christ to lay down His life on the cross for your sins. It is a love that is demonstrated, not just spoken, not just words, but it was lived out toward you, for you. It is a protective love. It is a strong love that is also kind and gentle. This is who God is. You want to boast in something? Don't boast in yourself. Boast in His love. Why? Like, why does that matter? How does that help us untangle pride from our hearts? Because pride seeks to place ourselves at the center. Pride is going to tell you, nobody else is going to care about you. Nobody else is going to take care of you. If you don't take care of yourself, who else is going to look out for you? And so we strive and we work. It's us against the world. But God's saying that's not the truth. Look at my steadfast, enduring love. You're going to stumble. You're going to fall. You're going to fall short. And my love is going to be eternal. I will never forsake you. I will never abandon you. I will walk with you. I will be with you each and every step of the way. My love is being demonstrated. I'm going to sacrifice the creator of the universe living with a sacrificial love toward us. You want to rest in something? Don't rest in your own strength. Rest in His love. That's going to be joy. That is true peace. And we see why it is better to to not look to ourselves, but to look to God. Pride is untangled in our heart when we look to God's love through the lens of humility. When we can say, I'm not the greatest, but He is. He's the one who is sufficient. And then it says that that God is His justice. 
See, each of these words, I've loved being able to study this week because we see injustice in the world, right? We can talk about injustice, a redefining, one definition that I saw this week defined injustice as a redefining of good and evil to our own personal advantage at the expense of others. Do you see that connection to sin of how injustice shows itself in our culture? A redefining of good and evil. That lie that echoes from the Garden of Eden. You'll be able to determine Eve. You'll be like God. You'll know good and evil. You'll determine for yourselves. But in the corruption of our own hearts, we determine what is right and what is wrong to our own personal advantage often intentionally or unintentionally, at the expense of others, because it's all about me. And then God steps in. And so then we look at the world and we're like, we have to fight. We have to get ahead. We have to to, to make things right. And we fight and we fight in ourselves and say, look at me. Look at what I deserve. Look at what I need. And then God steps in and he's like, look at me. I am the one who practices justice. The Hebrew word is mishpat. Throughout the Old Testament, it is often a restorative justice. Not just justice as in God is just. God determines what's right and wrong, though He does. But it is more than that. It is a description of a restorative justice. That the Bible project defines it as this. It is seeking out people who are vulnerable and being taken advantage of and helping them. It is a, a justice that, that moves towards the vulnerable, that moves toward the weak. This is the kind of justice that God is demonstrating toward us. Where we say, I'm the one vulnerable. I'm the one weak. And God in His justice isn't just standing there saying, this is what's morally right and this is what's morally wrong and you either live up to it or you don't. You're either good enough or you're not. It's a justice that, 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 that is a, a charity that, that moves toward us. That demonstrates toward us. Not condemnation, but forgiveness. Restoration. That he came in the world not to condemn the world, but to save the world. This is the justice of God toward us that I can rest in, that I don't have to project that everything's okay, that everything's right, that everything's perfect, because he knows it's not. And his heart towards me is to restore, is to love. I can rest in that. I can find joy in that despite my circumstances. And righteousness. The righteousness of God. This word is the exact opposite of mankind's sinful nature. It's not only that that God is perfect and we're not and so we can rest in him because he's perfect that is one element but it goes so much deeper this form of righteousness most commonly signifies charity now it's not charity how we think about it in the west when we think about oh we just kind of give out of the extra that we have we'll drop some things off at goodwill that we no longer need 
right? It's not that kind of charity. It's not like God's just giving us his leftovers when it's convenient. It's a charity in the Hebrew that's out of what they call like a deep moral obligation. It's saying it's out of the nature of who God is to extend out of his wealth, out of his righteousness, and to lavish it on those who are in need. When it says I'm going to boast in his righteousness, that's what we're boasting in, of God's riches, of his grace and mercy that have been extended to us. It's not what I've earned. It's not what I deserve. It's who he is. Here's my hope. We can boast in ourselves. And it's like lapping in a dusty, empty hole. Licking up the dust and dirt of our own failures and shame and condemnation and calling it joy because at least we're better than them. Or we can believe what has been declared to be true, that because of God, we are in Christ Jesus, that what he declares to be true about himself is true for us today. And to abide is to simply stay, to rest in where he has already placed us. We're not fighting to attain something that God is withholding from us. He has said, you are in me. These are true of you. This is what I declare to be true. Stay here. Rest here. Know who I am. Believe who I am. Let your joy come from the fountain of living waters that can be found only in Christ. Don't look to yourself in either building yourself up or tearing yourself down. In what ways? I think it would be helpful even just to, if you think in your own mind and heart, When it comes to pride, do you tend to build yourself up or tear yourself down? Maybe it's both. But do you tend to fall on one side of the coin or the other? To bring that before God. In what ways do you do that? To not just think generally, but to think specifically. Lord, I I sneak things into stories I tell or exaggerations I make or, or how I present myself to others. What are the, the ways in which sin, pride is wanting to tangle your heart? What does it look like to not just believe but to find our hope in rest in God's steadfast love, in his justice, in his righteousness. I'm going to be honest. Like, For me, I have the privilege and the opportunity to speak these truths into the life of others. But I have a hard time hearing my own voice in that. I was talking to an older pastor recently, and he was like, is is this true? Is what you're believing true? And I'm like, no. (laughs) 
So he's like, tell me, is this statement true? And it's words that I've said to others, but I need it to hear someone else say to me. I need it someone to say, is, is this true? Is this true of who God is? Is it true that he will never leave you or abandon you? Is it true that, that he accepts you because of Christ? Is it true that, that, that you are forgiven? Is it true that, that he is in control of everything, in every heart, in every motive around you? Is it true And I had to reorient my heart to what is true, but I couldn't hear my own voice to do that. And so I'm encouraging us together as a community, this isn't something that we can just do and navigate on our own individually and saying, okay, I'm going to preach the gospel to myself, though we need to do that. But I have a hard time hearing my own voice. We need one another to speak what is true of God into one another's life, to orient our hearts to Him instead of ourselves. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You. Lord, what can we say? But like, to, to, to even try to wrap our hearts and minds around your steadfast love. Lord, would you help us to believe what we know your word to say is true? Help our minds to believe that your word, when you say that your love is steadfast, when you say that that your justice is restorative, when we say that your righteousness is toward us and for our good, Lord, and not just our condemnation, help our minds believe that to to be true, but help our hearts to feel the weight and joy of that. Help us to to walk in a repentance that leads to rejoicing, to acknowledge our weakness and our failings, but to not stay there. Lord, to move from there to exalting your name for your praise and for your glory, that our joy is found in Christ, in Christ alone. Lord, be our joy be our satisfaction. Let us together as a community of faith speak the truth of who you are into one another's life to help us functionally believe and walk in what it means to abide in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.